up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. I'm so pumped to bring you these next three episodes. This is episode 86, and it kicks off a three-part series with Dustin Degman, a CRNA formerly with the United States Army on combat trauma anesthesia. In the first episode, we discussed Dustin's experience in Afghanistan serving at a forward operating base in Paktika province in 2012 to 2013. We talk about what makes up forward surgical teams and the role of CRNAs as the sole anesthesia provider on these teams. In part two, we discuss the principles of damage control resuscitation in the context of operating in a combat zone. In part three, we talk about the path to becoming a military CRNA and the importance of supporting our troops, both when they're deployed and when they're back at home. This series was originally recorded in early 2015, just a year or so after Dustin had returned from Afghanistan and while the war there was still raging. At the time, I was completing my anesthesia training at Western Carolina University and working on launching From the Head of the Bed, the podcast that preceded Anesthesia Guidebook. Dustin was one of my professors and clinical faculty at WCU and was kind enough to volunteer his time for these interviews back then. The reason I'm bringing them forward here is that they're chock full of wildly fantastic details on the experience of a forward deployed military anesthesia provider and the principles of trauma anesthesia, which are absolutely relevant today. Dustin served with the United States Air Force from 1998 to 2002 as a critical care registered nurse. He was honorably discharged and went on to complete his anesthesia training outside of the military. In 2010, he re-enlisted with the Army Reserves as a CRNA and was deployed in November of 2012 to Ford Operating Base Organ E in Paktika Province, Afghanistan, where he was the sole anesthesia provider on a Ford surgical team, providing damage control resuscitation to injured soldiers. Most recently, Dustin serves as the chief CRNA at Peace Health's Peace Harbor Medical Center in Florence, Oregon. In 2021, Dustin was awarded the Peace Health Mission and Values Award, and the organization put together an incredible video tribute to Dustin, which I'm going to link to in the show notes. Degman's the real deal. He was the real deal a decade ago when he was serving in Paktika province, Afghanistan, which he talks about in these next three episodes, and he's still the real deal as he serves as a CRNA with Peace Harbor Medical Center out on the coast of Oregon. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from Dustin on combat trauma anesthesia, and with that, let's get to the show. Dustin, thank you for being on the podcast and thank you for your service in the military. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be able to uh, do this. That's awesome. Well, tell us a little bit about your experience as a military CRNA, how you got into the service, uh, where and when you served. So um, I got out of the service when I was active duty in the Air Force, didn't ever anticipate ever going back in. I was district director for the North Carolina Association of Nurse Anesthetists. During that time, I had to hold a district meeting. On the previous meeting, someone had put in their comments section that they would like one of the presentations on battlefield anesthesia. So I tried to get a speaker from uh, Womack Medical Center at Fayetteville for Fort Bragg. I couldn't get anybody, but someone else I knew. I had all my my presenters lined up, but um, except for that one presentation, I, I thought it would be good to at least follow what people suggested to do. So I knew someone who knew someone that was in Iraq in the Army Reserves, and he did his presentation at the district meeting that I was holding, and um, it changed my life at that moment. Um, and you have to kind of think about it at the time, like, if you're going to bring this up to your family, how do you do it? You don't just say, hey, at this point in time, I want to do this. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you tell them that, 
the incentive and benefits behind it and then that you want to do it and you kind of go forward from there. But really how I got back into the military was someone else, you mm-hmm. know, their inspiration towards me. I was inspired to them. It was, um, it was pretty awesome actually. Very few moments in people's lives where one person can have such a profound effect on you. That was one of two moments. The other one is when I met a retired patient. I was a retired CRNA. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you were a CRNA when you came back and you joined the Army Reserves. I was, yep. I was a CRNA, then came back to join the Reserves. That's great. Take care of injured guys. And you served in Afghanistan in 2012? I did, 2012-2013. Yep. Excellent. So, well, thank you again for uh, joining us. And the the way that we're going to break this podcast up, there's a lot of info that we want to talk to Dustin today about. And uh, we're going to do kind of a three-part mini-series for the folks that are listening. And the first part is going to be about some of the key differences and challenges in serving in a forward surgical team and managing combat trauma patients. And then the second part, we're going to kind of hold off for part two. And in part two, we're going to dive deep into damage control resuscitation and some of the things that are different in a military setting than a, than a civilian setting. And then part three, we'll come back with Dustin and we'll talk about you know a little bit more on how to get involved as a CRNA in the military and how the rest of us can support our friends and family who are troops serving in the military. So let's start off. Dustin, how does the, how does the patient population differ when you're working at a forward, with a forward surgical team at a forward operating base and may, maybe give a little frame of reference for listeners on what those things mean. And then how does the patient population differ in the folks that you're caring for in those settings than what you typically see, say, here in Asheville in the mountains? Sure. As as trauma services. Yeah. So we'll go first into what the forward surgical team is, which is it's a, usually a 12-man team. I think it's a 24-man team, which they have two ORs back-to-back. The beds are actually in a tent side-to-side. Now, a FST, a fast team, forward surgical team, it was meant to be just set up for 72 hours and have supplies that would last just that long. It could be dropped from a plane, you know, with a crate behind enemy lines, what we call roll two. Roll one being the battlefield, roll two being behind the lines, roll three, more in a hardened structure near the battlefield, roll four, usually some distance away. Roll five, some medical center in the U.S., roll six, your home unit. So this was kind of behind the lines, considered behind the lines. So the whole purpose of the Ford surgical team is there used to be what they called a MASH, a mobile army surgical hospital. And they were finding that people were bleeding too fast before they got to the hospitals. It was that golden hour. So you really die one of three ways in military. One is immediate injury, gunshot to the head. Number two is exsanguination. You bleed out. Number three is either ARDS or uh, infection. You know, three weeks later, you can't manage that infection. Mm-hmm. So the whole purpose of, of the, going back to it, the forward surgical team is to manage just bleeds, damage control. Take care of that problem right now. It's all hemorrhage. It's all hemorrhage. Mm-hmm. You take care of that hemorrhage. Well, sometimes uh, the head, head uh, cases too, but for the most part, it's hemorrhage. Take care of the hemorrhage send them to the next role. Mm-hmm. It would be like rural area, like Murphy getting a trauma patient and then stabilizing that patient all the way out in the middle of the mountains, just so they can come to Asheville to get their surgery done. Right. That's in essence what that was. So our board surgical team got broke up into two. So we had literally one individual team that won one OR and then, so that was with us at Organy, and there was another forward surgical team that got broke up and went to kill a guy, which was north of Bagram, north of uh, Mosai Sharif, which was one of the first major campaigns when we first went into Afghanistan. 
So our team got broken up. So I, we literally had one team with us, mm-hmm. uh, which composed of 10 or 11 people. So the differences, you know, surgical differences, demographics wise, you know, 20 to 40 year old kids, 24 year old guys, mm-hmm. you know, pretty healthy. I mean, you got to be physically fit to at least pass standards and be deployed. So that's a big difference. You don't have any co- real significant comorbidities. You can get away with a lot. There's a big functional reserve on a young, healthy right. guy. You can tolerate a lot of stress. Did you have many women as patients? No, zero. 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 And what was the mix in so, terms of U.S. soldiers, Afghan soldiers, friendly? About uh, 90% of the patients that I took care of were Afghans. Uh-huh. So... On our base of about 500 men, 600 men, I may have seen five women. Three of those were on our surgical team. Two of those were on FET teams, uh, female engagement teams that go into the communities with the infantry to talk to ladies in the villages. So um, that was it. Every now and then you might get somebody that was what they considered a non-governmental agency or, or governmental, let's see, OGA, other governmental agency that would deal with either... NSA, CIA, whatever it is on the other side of the base. Every now and then there might be a female that might be it. But really, surgically, all guys, all in the 20 to 40 range, 90% Afghan. Um, Of the Americans that I took care of, they were all IEDs. So injury types were rollovers, gunshot wounds, IEDs. Rollovers. All of them. Gunshot wounds, IEDs. Yep. And you've said, uh, as we prepared for this podcast, that the Mm -hmm. patients that you dealt with were... Uh, when you say 90% Afghans, yep. you're talking uh, primarily about people who were in service to the United States, paid by the United States as right. part of the campaign. Right. So when we first invaded Afghanistan, the medical rules of engagement were we would win the hearts and mind of the community. So they took care of the community. They would have patients within the community that would come in that they would do elective surgery on. And then it changes as we built hospitals out in these communities. Then it was, okay, we're going to hand the populist care over to the hospitals we just built. Now we'll take care of the Afghan army. We'll take care of the Afghan local police. We'll take care of Afghan governmental officials. Then that changes to, we're going to only take care of the Afghans that America um, pays, which would be those that work with special forces, those that work with CIA. And then it changed to only American troops, you know, with time as we're withdrawing. So the the medical rules of engagement always changed. Ours changed when I was there was those paid by America. So those working with special forces, CIA. But that's not to say you couldn't do surgery for the interpreters. So we've had cases where the interpreter's um, nephew fell off the roof and it's obvious you know, green stick fracture right. of the arm that we would go and do a closed reduction on that he didn't want to take to the local hospital. There would be other times where CIA would come over with a guy and say, hey, this guy's got good intel, but his X fix is put on wrong. He might give us some information if we correct his. So this is what the so quote unquote surgeon general of we were task force Med East out of Bagram. We had to have an orientation with him, and he would say, if you decide to do a surgery that is not within the realm of life, limb, or eyesight, then you own it. Don't call Bagram asking if they can pick up this patient. Don't call anybody. Right. You own it. 
Right. So we did own a case where we did a surgery of reapplying an X-fix on a guy. That <laughs> yeah. So the CIA could hopefully get a little bit more into nice, I guess nice. it was CIA. They, they never tell you what their true oh, role is. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Right. Sure. <laughs> so now in part two, we're going to come back and we'll, we'll talk more about damage control, sure. resuscitation, and the whole process and kind of goals and all that kind of stuff. So you said that your mechanism of injuries were largely rollovers, IEDs, and uh, gunshot wounds. Mm -hmm. That is correct. In part two, we're going to talk about the nitty-gritty of damage control resuscitation, but give us a bit of a primer on you know, how did patients come to you? What were your initial goals in surgery before that patient would get moved out to somewhere else to get right. more thoroughly managed? So my initial goal, always every day, mindset was be prepared, be ready know your supplies, know your equipment. I spent hours and hours and hours in our ATLS section memorizing everything that was in the cart to where if I had my eyes closed, I could grab it to get in the OR, understand where my meds were, understand where my airway stuff is, understand where my, my, um, colloids were coming from everything. You need to know everything. So I prepared myself almost immediately when I got there, the first eight hours, Every day for those first week, I was just spent all my time in there before patient care. Um, the second thing is the patient comes through the ATLS station and the patients came to us because the first sergeant always carries a walkie talkie with him who has of who listens to the chatter to know if there's been an injury within our district, within our zone. So then he calls the rest of the team because we always had to live within three minutes of the o, of the OR. And we always had to ride on a board where we were at all times. You know, whether you were taking a shower, whether you were getting something to eat, whether you were going to the MWR, Morale Welfare and Recreation Center, whether you were going to the gym, they, everybody had a pulse on where you were. So um, the first sergeant gets a call, says, hey, there's one coming in five minutes. There's one coming in three minutes. There's one at the gate. And then it disperses. You know, someone runs, gets everybody. We all meet up in the uh, ATLS st uh, station. And from there, it's assessment. What do we got? You know, who can tell us about what's going on? What's the mechanism of injuries? Um, if it's determined that there is a significant bleed going on, or if there's a significant injury to the head that needs to be repaired right away, then we go back to the OR and we immediately take care of the injury. A lot of the injuries are blast injuries. A lot of the injuries are extremities, you know, because they've got the Kevlar. Mm -hmm. Well, Americans have the Kevlar helmet, Kevlar plates, the front, back, and sides. Um, so your, your extremities are exposed. Now, the Afghans don't wear. They like to be light and mobile and move fast. So we would even get injuries from the Afghans that weren't really typical with Americans. Sure. So what's the, what's the injury? Is it worth doing surgery on now? And then um, once surgery was done, the first sergeant would let us know when ETA would be that the Black Hawk would be able to fly them out to Bagram. Or if they were Afghan, there was a French hospital with a, and I forget the name of the hospital, but it was in Kabul that was ran by French doctors, French um, healthcare team that they would fly and they would take care That's of the Afghans there. So these folks are, are, are not staying with you for a long amount of time. These patients are going to stay with us after surgery, before and after surgery, maybe an hour tops. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Pretty quick in and out. Yes. In and out. How did the lack of supplies affect your practice at this base? Believe it or not, we had amazing supplies, but we were short on some. So 
I had a Belmont. I had a Rapid Infuser. I had a normal Drager. I had uh, FFP in my OR. I had pack cells in my refrigerator. I had narcotics in a lockbox line. Like I had everything at my disposal versus having to run out and get everything. That's great. So what was I lacking? I was lacking cryoprecipitate. I was lacking platelets. Um, we just don't have the means of flying that out there and having a shaker to keep the platelets from agitating, you know? Um, so, um, those were two things we were lacking. Dilantin was a little bit hard to come by. Hmm. Um, and we had to order that when I was there, but really we had just about everything that I needed for just damage control, you know, not anything. We didn't have anything laparoscopic. Our ortho trauma doc had a free clinic twice a week. And he saw sorts of shoulders injury, knee injuries. He'd be like, I want to do this orthoscopically. Yeah, like, sure. I wish we had more equipment here so we could just do this, you know, but he couldn't. Right. He would give right. him his card and say, when you got, I'm active duty. When you get out, give me a call. I'll see you at Fort Stewart. We'll take care of this injury. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's a good guy. Yeah. Real that's awesome. Guy. Yeah. That's awesome. So a little bit more just about the mm-hmm. environment that you're working in. You're, you're the only anesthesia provider. I was. During that time. Mm-hmm. So... There's no one else to yeah. administer anesthesia. You're it 24-7 on call. Yep. No matter how busy you were, you're it. Three months on call. And your your team was split. You said typically a forward surgical team, there's two OR beds, right. two teams ready to go. But in your case, there's just one. Right. Did you find yourself in the decision-making process of having to triage multiple injuries who would need to come, or did that get sorted out before they got to organ E? We did. So the battalion aid station is responsible for like sick call, people that come in. There's a person that mans that at all times. And they are pretty good about triaging and helping us if we needed additional help. Um, But my role, so really when I was most scared when I was there was when I first got there because I just didn't know where stuff was. Like... I understand how to take care of, of a of a bleeding patient. I just need to know where things are. Thankfully, half of my team was already there when I got there. Like half the team left, half the team was replaced. So there were still people within that team there to know where things were, to help me out those first week to so I could figure out where things were. But we did have a situation where some Afghans went to have breakfast. They came back. Someone planted an IED under their vehicle. And then when they all four of them went in, they blew it up. So we immediately had three, four patients that came right at our door. So my role as sole anesthesia provider wasn't to... My role was a teaching role for my medics. Mm -hmm. So my medics were... We were there to teach them on the Afghans, not the Americans, to intubate, to place a chest tube, to start my IVs. Now, granted, I would do the central line, but we used our medics to their absolute fullest capability because if something was to happen, like an IED placed under a vehicle in which it blows up, and now we have four traumas coming in, they need to know how to put that airway in if I'm taking care of the sickest. So that's what we did. It was a very much a teaching role. In that situation, the one guy had died. The second one had blast injuries to his extremities that we ended up having to take care of. The third guy had facial burns and uh, was managed by the battalion aid station. And the other guy wasn't injured enough. You know, he had blown eardrums. Mm-hmm. But so you had, out of those out three of those four, surviving, you had one three, surgical patient. One surgical. Yep. Yeah. So understandably, I would imagine that most of your injuries are, ha- you know, you've got a secure base. 
Yes. Uh, how did security on, in, and around the base affect your role as an anesthesia provider? Yeah, so infantry provided, I was first with 1st Division and then 10th Mountain Division moved in halfway through my deployment and they guarded the perimeter. Now, security of the ATLS station, the, the FST, everybody was to put their weapon in a certain place because you're, you are, you're getting injured troops that, that aren't going to give up their weapon. So um, there would usually be someone there to clear the weapon and then put it to the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had to check for munitions um, if it was, because you don't want to be running cautery on someone that has uh, a grenade or right. something that could be live or, or tripped with electricity. So um, that was the other thing is usually the people that uh, picked up the patient would usually strip them down pretty quick mm-hmm. in the helicopter before they got to or check them briefly so that they didn't come on the ATLS bed right. with a weapon. You feel like as far as uh, the daily operations of that Ford operating base, the security was, was pretty tight knit. You felt... Like your base never felt threatened. Yeah, yeah. Well, because you're in my understanding, you're pretty far forward as far as you're pretty far out at Oregon E. Yeah, and I should have explained it with our fast teams. So we've been so established in Afghanistan that we didn't really truly have what they call. Um, a forward surgical team that was set up for 72 hours. We had an actual physical structure, which most places did now by that time, that were located on forward operating bases that were protected, never really felt threatened. But we had forward surgical teams scattered all over Afghanistan within one hour of every base. So one hour uh, helicopter flight. So it was really a 30 minute perimeter around those. And that was enacted by Congress or that was enacted by legislation uh, because they'd never used to be as many bases throughout Afghanistan. But it was required politically that they should have these kind of makes sense to Mm -hmm. have it that way, too. But um, no, never felt threatened. We were very cautious on Christmas, thinking that hmm. we were going to get mortars, that we were going to have an attack on Christmas Day. It was a little bit tense. We checked our weapons, cleaned our weapons, counted our ammo, just just preventative. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was good to just go through all that anyway sure, as sure. a unit. But you had a safe Christmas. We had a safe Christmas. Good, good. That's <laughs> yeah. good to hear. You've spoken a little bit about it, but. Tell us a little bit more about what the relationships like were like with the rest of your team in and outside the OR, the people that you worked with right. to manage these patients from a surgical perspective. Yeah, so we had I had a right side of medic, a left side of medic. We had an ortho trauma doc, a general trauma doc, myself, the CRNA. We had someone that ran x-rays. We had a first sergeant that was communicating with Bagram to transfer and also knew about the patient that we were going to pick up. We had an ICU nurse. We had an OR um, it wasn't an OR nurse. It was ORs. Like we had a circulator and an OR tech that would be like our circulator. So those were our ten people. Mm-hmm. So um, the relationship we had, we worked in harmony with one another. We uh, lived with one another. We told our fears about the worst cases with one another. Um, you never really do anything in the operating room, the civilian section, to where. You follow up afterwards to say three things you did that was good, three things that you did that you could improve like an after upon. action review. An after action review, yep. So uh, we did that. We briefed, we had our everyday Wednesday morning meetings regarding trauma management with the ortho trauma doc giving a lecture, general trauma doc giving a lecture, I'm giving a lecture. 
you know, when you see a weakness and within a team member, you, you improve that you try to do what you can. So I've had my right sided medic that no, my left sided medic that would miss IVs, practice IVs on me, you know, working on intubations. We spent a lot of time with one another. Another one was a, one of the ICU nurses wanted to get her CCRN. And so we all worked as a team to try to get her well prepared for that. And she passed it immediately when she got back to the States. Yeah. We had another guy that uh, wanted to go to college and and he was able to take an online course through college for speech and get some of the classes out of the way, one of the young medics. And so, um, you know, we were there to help him through that school Mm -hmm. to be part of an audience for his speech class and give feedback, things like that. So, I mean, obviously you're, you're 24 seven with these people because you're at this Ford operating base and Mm -hmm. this is what you do. This is your full time everyday job, role, life, the people that you work with. Right. So that environment lends itself well to that degree of teamwork, communication, meshing right. with your team. Do you think that some of those activities that you did, the after action review, those kind of things, the amount of teamwork and communication that you put into one another, do you think that those kind of principles would, would serve us in civilian centers? Do you think that there's room for that? So there, that's a good question because there's a lot of discussion about who is the best surgeon to take care of a hernia? Who is the best surgeon to take care of a lap coli? And a lot of literature will say, you go to the hernia, the doc that does nothing but hernias. You go to the doc to get your gallbladder out to the guy who does nothing but gallbladders and with his team. And so they are used to seeing problems more common than a team that gets kind of put together on a whim and do multiple different kind of cases. And and I think we do a good job putting teams together in the OR, regardless of where we're at. We usually see the same orthopedic team. We usually see the same Mm -hmm. neuro team. We usually see the same peds team. And so it does tighten that relationship, I think, as a team. But yet in the civilian world, there's more to providing the anesthesia after hours. There's more to after hour cases than just that team. And so uh, you're forced to kind of broaden that. Right. And so it's not the same team anymore. Right. Right. But I think it can be accomplished in the civilian world. I just think it's harder to accomplish. Yeah, sure. Sure. One other thing I wanted to ask you about in this part before we move on uh, is, you know, you're at a Ford operating base. You're working as the sole anesthesia care provider there as a CRNA. You know, there's incredible autonomy, decision making. Was it challenging to come back to an anesthesia care team model? And when you've been operating at such a high level of independence and autonomy? It wasn't for me. I was kind of forewarned ahead of time of the uh, here to zero is what they Mm -hmm. call it, where... You feel like you're a hero. You put these efforts in, you know, the honest truth is most of the traumas. Well, I don't know if it's honest truth. I believe most of the traumas that happen in civilian world is drunk 20 to 40 year old guy who probably doesn't have the same. I think the OR staff might not have the same mentality as a wounded soldier that Mm -hmm. put his life online to try to for a cause and purpose. I mean, everybody just responds different. I don't know if that's true or not, but here you you see a kid that is given his ultimate price for a reason, and you're going to do whatever you can to make sure that that guy is going to do well. And whether that means you're going to give him factor seven and TXA, and there is no cost to this. Mm -hmm. It is you, you keep this guy alive. It does. That's not the way in civilian life. You know, we're doing, we don't do 
whole blood administration for a reason. We don't do where I'm at one to one with mm-hmm. pack cells and FFP and platelets. You know, we do four units of pack cells, maybe for a cost. I don't know. Followed up by FFP. Mm-hmm. So it is a difference in management of care from how we deal with a soldier beyond demographics right. and how we deal with it. So the hero to zero, just to get back to it. I was forewarned about it. It didn't bother me. I'm already in a very autonomous practice anyway with where we practice. And so it was more of a welcome home, Dustin. That's awesome. Know. Yeah, it was It was a nice transition. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Well, Dustin, um, anything else you want to tell us real quick? We've got more conversation to come in these next yeah. two parts, but anything else that you want to speak to while it's fresh in your mind about the challenges serving in a, in a forward surgical team, a forward operating base before we move on? No, I can't think of any. Okay, great. Well, folks, stay tuned, and uh, we're going to keep going here today. We're going to sit through the next two parts, but uh, we're going to break this up for the podcast in three different interviews. So, Dustin, thanks again for your intro to your deployment and some of the challenges you faced. And next we'll return to talk about some of the specifics with damage control resuscitation. Okay. Sounds great. What up y'all to close each of these three episodes out. I'd like to encourage you to make a donation to the Pat Tillman foundation in honor of army ranger, Pat Tillman, who was killed in Afghanistan in 2004. The Pat Tillman foundation awards academic scholarships to military service members, veterans, and their spouses. Dustin Degman identified this as one of the several service organizations that he believes in and encourages you to give to either the Tillman Foundation or an organization you connect with. If we each give $10 to $20, our collective impacts will make a huge difference. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.